How's that? That's better, isn't it? Uh, I wanted to, um, to start by thanking Tim for praying into the situation in Christchurch. Thanks, mate. That's much appreciated. Um, we, we must acknowledge uh, the incredible privilege it is to meet in sanctuary like this, a safe place, and to hear God's word. Uh, and it must be truly horrific to be people whose sanctuary has been violated in the way that it was uh, for those um, uh, poor people in uh, Christchurch. So thank you, Tim, for bringing that to our attention. Uh, we want to use the incredible freedom that we have tonight and this quietness to be able to turn our attention to God. So I'm going to pray that he would help us tonight. Heavenly Father, our hearts go out to those uh, who are broken physically and mentally and emotionally in Christchurch. Uh, Lord, we ask your comfort and your blessing on them. Father, for us here so far away and feeling so safe and secure tonight, we ask, Father, that we might use this great privilege tonight. Father, by your Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts and our ears so that we might hear and that because your word challenges us and your spirit remakes us, we might be different because of what we hear. But we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, yeah, I would love you to have that uh, passage open. Uh, so we're continuing our series in Luke chapter 6, and we're going to look at this uh, incredible passage, which is, uh, for all intents and purposes, Luke's Sermon on the Mount, you know, Matthew 5. Well, here we are in Luke 6, which is um, Luke's account of Jesus' special teaching in this way. And uh, as we do tonight, uh, I've got something I really want you to take home. Uh, that the future needs to shape the present. The future needs to shape our present. And uh, I'll tell you what I mean by that as we go through. And there's one particular illustration I'd love you to hang on to tonight. Now, I'd just like to say, as a group, we are pretty bad at thinking about the future. Uh, do you guys know that there's an election next week? Right. And we're all carefully organised. We're going to weigh our votes and cast them with great care, aren't we? At least that's the intention, isn't it? I mean, this is us freely choosing who will govern us. This is the future for us. And we kind of go, oh, I hope I get to pick up a sausage. You know, well, there's good parking at the... Po- we really, I think, treat this future choice with some degree of disdain, I think. Uh, what, about, uh, what about the dentist? I, I, I said to the guys this morning, I'll say to you tonight, there is a dentist in your future. Uh, eventually you'll go back to the dentist. If you're a regular dentist person, that'll probably be a wonderful thing. I don't know if there is such a thing as a wonderful visit to the dentist, but uh, for those of you who don't go regularly, there is a dentist in your future. You will eventually return. The choices that we make today will impact our future visit to the dentist. This makes sense, of course, doesn't it? But we don't often think very much about it. Or what about exams? Those of you who are still in exam land, do you know that there are exams in your future? What we do today shapes how well we'll experience them, and yet we're not very good at following through. I like to say, and, and I hardly ever use my kids in, uh, in illustrations, but they're not here tonight, so I will. Um, I like to say that, uh, I say to Isaac, present Zaki doesn't like future Zaki. What I mean by that is, present Zaki is happy to throw future Zaki under the bus, right? If you don't do that, there won't be any iPad later on. Uh-huh. Future Zaki is suffering, but present Zaki doesn't mind. Okay, do you see how this works? Now, we operate like this all the time. We throw future self under the bus with the decisions we make today. 
Okay, and what I want us to do is to thinking about the future. There are some people whose destiny, whose future is decided by their current decisions. Have a look with me at Philippians chapter 3. Uh, it's up on the screen here, uh, verse 19. Talking about those people who don't know Jesus, it says, Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. See, there is a destiny for those who aren't trusting in Jesus. It's one of destruction. How do they get there? It says that their God is their stomach. In other words, their appetites direct them. Not their head, not their heart, their appetites. And so they follow their lesser desires to destruction. There's, there's a great illustration of that. Uh, do you remember Jacob and Esau in the Bible? Uh, who is the elder of those two? Yes, it's a trick question because we always say Jacob and Esau, but it's actually Esau and Jacob. Esau was the older one. And one day he was out hunting and he got really hungry and he came back home and he saw his brother had some soup and he said, oh, give me some of that soup because he was ravenously hungry. And his brother said, sure, no problems, man. I'll tell you what, I'll give you the soup if you give me your inheritance, your position as the firstborn, hand it over to me and I'll slip you back the soup. And he goes, yeah, what good is my inheritance if I'm hungry, if I die of hunger? And so he takes the bowl of soup. And, and here's the thing. Exchanging something you can't buy for your appetite is always a poor decision. And I think as a society, we trade our inheritance, we trade the goodness of God for a bowl of soup. And every time, it's a stupid decision. It's a stupid decision. Their God is their stomach. But here's the rest of that verse from Philippians chapter 3. But our citizenship, this is you, Christian brothers and sisters, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorious body. You see, we aren't people whose God is our stomach. Jesus is our God, and he makes us beautiful promises. Here's the illustration I want you to take away tonight. So really pay attention to this if you can. Um, does anyone know where this bridge is? San Francisco? Anyone been there and seen it? Apparently it's pretty impressive, right? It's an amazing bridge. Now I want to use this bridge as a metaphor for us, okay? I want to suggest that the present is this side over here and that on the other side over there is the future, far away from us, okay? And what connects the future to the present is the person of God. We're going to say that God is the bridge. He is eternal and immutable and all-powerful and all-knowing. He connects the future to the present. So the future exists out there somewhere and God connects it to the present for us. And so what we want to know is that God is sovereign. That means he's the king. He's in charge. He rules the future and the present. He takes us unerringly into the future because he is there now even as we are here in the present. So God is sovereign. Secondly, what happens is sin obscures. Sin obscures. It takes away the other side. We can't see the future and we start to doubt the sovereignty of God. Sin comes in and clouds our vision. And so all we see, all we rely on is the future, I mean, is the present, sorry, right here on our side. But I want you to know that this situation is not permanent. Okay, does the other side of the harbour disappear in a fog? Just in case we're wondering here, just checking in with you guys, it doesn't. Okay, it's always there. 
but sometimes you can't see it. Are you with me? And so sin obscures our view, but it is not permanent. It won't always be like that. And so what Jesus does is Jesus crosses the bridge back to us. Okay, Jesus walks into the present and he brings something of the other side to us. He brings healing. He brings uh, chasing out of demons. He brings the teaching of the kingdom of God. Jesus drags the future into the present when he comes. Okay, And he has things that make the future, the kingdom of God, accessible to the needy. I'm going to talk a little bit more about this today. And the awesome thing that you need to know is that the kingdom will be brought in full on the final day. On the final day, the kingdom of God will be clearly seen by all. The sovereignty of God, the future of God will come and be ours. So have you got the illustration? There's the future. It's always there. Sometimes we can't see it, but it is rock solid. And if we don't understand that, we won't get what Jesus is saying here. I want you to remember that Jesus says that he has come for a particular group of people. He didn't come for the people who think they're good enough for God. In fact, he said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He says, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. Jesus has a word about the future for those who have a need. And they will be the sick and the sinful. It therefore follows that being blessed, and we're going to see blessed in this passage here, blessed isn't being happy. Okay, So we might say, I'm really blessed today because I found a car park at Norellan easily, right? Okay, none of you go to Norellan. All right, that's, that's good. The line in the post office at Norellan was short. Surely I'm blessed, right? Okay, now you're starting to resonate with me. All right, okay. We, we use this turn of phrase, blessed, really flippantly, and it kind of means everything's going my way, okay? And that is not what it means in the Bible, okay? What, what it means in the Bible, blessed, it's a state of being where knowing God's love today is shaped because of his promises for tomorrow. So I know today that I am blessed not because of all the things I see around me today, not because of car parks. I might be having a terrible day. It's possible to be having a terrible day and be blessed because the future promises of God are mine today. Being blessed is not about looking around and going, do I feel happy? We don't look to our stomach. We look to the word of God and say, what is true about the future for me? Are you with me? So we look to a different place and it informs our today. Well, let's look at the passage. Come with me uh, to, uh, to Luke chapter 6, and we're going to see Jesus up on a mountainside making some decisions. Have a look with me at verse 12 and following. One of these days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, whom he designated apostles, Simon, whom he called Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, there'll be a quiz at the end. No, that's, that's a joke. Uh, he went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, that's the south, from Jerusalem, also south, from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, to the... West and the north, 
Uh, and they had come who had heard him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured. And the people all tried to touch him because power was coming out from him and healing them all. Now, this is a really famous situation. And I, I want you to see that Jesus is making key decisions. What's he doing? He's choosing his disciples from the massive crowd who are there. And, and I want to suggest to you that if anyone could have just shot from the hip and picked some guys, I'll have you and you and you and you and you, it probably would have been that Jesus could have made some good decisions on the fly. Yep. He's pretty wise. He's the incarnate son of God. He probably could have made some good decisions. But what did he do? He went up on a mountain to pray. And this was his prayer. Dear Lord, guide me. Amen. And then he said, I'm going to pick you and you and you. No. He went up to a mountain to pray. How long did he pray for? Have a look. The whole night. Now, guys, many of you are at a point where you will make decisions in your lives. And we say you should pray about it. And we offer a two-second prayer and we go, oh, well, God didn't help me. I guess I'll just make a decision. Or alternatively, even worse, I'm going to make a decision and then retrospectively say, God, bless the decision I've just made. Terrible. That is true. That is, that is what we do. Okay. And what I want to suggest to you is if it took a night of hanging out in intimacy and dependence on the Heavenly Father for Jesus, the Son of God, to make a decision, how much more us... Those of you who are younger, those of you who are older, we will come to these crunch decision points. Jesus should model for us what it looks like to depend on our Heavenly Father in decision-making. Are you with me? And after that decision-making, I want you to see he still had Judas on his team, and that'll get you to um, consider for a long time why he did that, but he did. He chose Judas as well. But I want you to see how powerful God's presence was with him. Did you see this description? The people were all coming him. They were reaching out to touch him because power was coming out from him and healing all of them. It's a rush. It's a crush to get next to the awesome power of Jesus. Well, what happens next is a discussion of this blessed state. And using our bridge illustration, I want you to see that it's possible to be on one side, on the present side of the bridge, and know that you're blessed even when things are hard even when things are hard. Have a look with me at the verses that follow here in verse 20 to 23. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how your ancestors treated the prophets. So what do I want you to see here? Well, firstly, it's not, it's not blessed to be poor. There's nothing innately blessed in going, I don't have enough money to pay the mortgage this week. That, that is not an innately brilliant spot. It, it's not innately good to feel hungry. Ask my kids after school, at, uh, afternoon tea time. That they, happiness doesn't reign in hunger time. It's not great to mourn. There's, there's nothing innately wonderful about mourning. It's not blessed to be those things. You're blessed because of the state that it places you in. See, when we're poor, we must depend on God. Why? Because we don't look to our other functional saviour. What's our other functional saviour? It's our bank balance, right? 
those of you who are blessed enough to have a bank balance that can be that. But here's the thing. Trouble comes along and we turn to go, can we get out of it by looking to our bank balance, right? Is there enough money here to help us? If, we, if, we, if the bank balance fails us, maybe we turn to our family. If our family fails us, then we turn to our friends. If our friends fail us, we might go, oh God, help me. My bank balance, my family and my friends have failed. Are you with me? Where do we turn first? When all those other things are stripped away, we must depend on God. So it's not blessed to be poor, but it's blessed because it opens you up to dependence and being dependent opens you up to the kingdom of God. I want you to see, though, it's not blessed to stay in that state. God is saying the reversal is coming. If you mourn now, you will laugh. If you're hungry now, you will be satisfied. If you're outside the kingdom, you feel like you lack the favor of God, yours is the kingdom. And then it says at the end, you are blessed when people hate you and exclude you and insult you. Does anyone here like it when people hate you and exclude you and insult you? Nobody does. Oh, you don't. And if I could, I, I could do a really practical thing now and, and exclude you or make you feel bad, and that you wouldn't like that. We don't like that, okay? But here's the thing. Jesus says you're blessed in that day. And, and all I want you to know is you better be hated and excluded because of Jesus and not because you're a jerk. See, because some people, some people are hated and excluded in, in the name of Jesus, but they're really just obnoxious people. So don't be that person, right? We want you to give the message of new life in warm and beautiful and creative ways. Do that. But here's the thing. If you're excluded and hated on that day, you can actually know you're blessed. And here's what I mean to say, take the future and let it inform the present. He says, rejoice in that day. And you go, that is the last feeling I have in my stomach when people reject me. Is that right? And I want you to see how powerful Jesus thinks the future is. He says, rejoice in that day because great is your reward in heaven. Actually change your emotional response to the rejection of the world. That is radical, isn't it? And so we see Peter and James and John, after they're they're flogged by the synagogue leaders, after Jesus has gone up to heaven in the book of Acts, they are flogged for the name of Jesus. And it says they went home rejoicing that they'd been counted worthy of suffering for the name. Now, that's extraordinary. So if it's about Jesus, you are blessed. But Jesus has some woes. I want to invite you to come and have dinner with me on the, in this beautiful dining room. Does anyone like this dining room? Of course you do. It's the first-class dining room. Come and eat the riches in this dining room. It is the dining room in the first-class saloon of the Titanic. Now, you are rich to be there. You were going to eat the finest of fare, but woe to you if you're on the deck of the Titanic. I want you to see the woes that Jesus talks about here. They're very surprising for us. Verse 24, but woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when people speak well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. This is a confusing one, isn't it? Isn't it great to be rich and well-fed and liked? Isn't that what the TV evangelist would tell you you want to have? Jesus says, woe to you if that is your situation. Here's the reason why. Because wealth inoculates us 
against dependence on God. Do you know what inoculates is? We give you a little bit of the disease so that you don't catch the full... We we never end up feeling like we're really dependent because I can always fall back on my money. Wealth inoculates us against dependence. And so it is woeful for us if we are so rich that we rely on that and not God. There are some people who are known as jokers. Anyone have some friends who are the jokers? They're always, they've always got the funny line. And it's okay to be the joker, but if that's all you've got, you have very little because laughter lacks depth. The people that you respect, the people that you look up to, the people that you go, they're solid humans, they're the people I want to follow, have always been carved out by suffering. They've always been shaped by hardship. And so he says here, woe to you who laugh, for you will mourn. Mourning is coming. If all you've got is laughter, you lack depth, and a day of sorrow will come upon you. Thirdly, he says, woe to you when people speak well of you. Now, guys, I've got to tell you, a little confession moment, I want people to speak well of me. I really do. So what's this woe? Woe to you when people speak well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. See, here's the thing. If all you've got is the praise of other people, then you've got a very good dinner party on the deck of the Titanic. They're all going to go down with you into the icy cold water. Here's the thing. What we need is praise from God because that will last. Praise from God will last. It's not wrong to be well-liked, but if that's all you've got and it's at the exclusion of the approval of God, then woe to us. Woe to us. Jesus is now going to tell us some more things about what it looks like to live in a world where people don't approve of us. He's going to talk about enemies, and and this is the border between North and South Korea, uh, two nations that are still at war. I don't know if you knew that. They haven't officially declared an end to that war. Let's have a look at what Jesus says about enemies here in verses 27 and following. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them also the other. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Do you have real enemies? I hope not. I hope not. But some people don't get to pick their enemies. They choose you. And you might find yourself in a situation where you have a genuine enemy, someone who's opposed to you. In that situation, Jesus wants to talk to us. And we should think a little bit about pacifism and justice. Uh, Jesus is not saying here that we never seek justice. What he's saying when he says, turn the other cheek, is actually something profound about peacemaking. But just before I tell you that, I need to say something very clear. Turning the other cheek is not a word about domestic violence. It is always wrong to be hit in your home. That is not something we would ever condone here. And we should not hear Jesus saying, you should turn the other cheek in a situation where you're not safe. That is not what Jesus is talking about here. What he is talking about, though, is if someone slaps me in the cheek, what is my first response? Someone slaps me in the cheek. Well, absolutely, you slap them back. But here's the thing. I I don't tend to think that most people will slap them back. 
Oh, there you go. Are we even now? Tra-la-la, how nice. If someone slaps me in the cheek, I'm probably not forming an open hand. I'm probably forming a closed hand. So you slap me, and I'm going to do something which I'm sure I'll regret, because I'm not very good at any of this. I don't... I'm going to be in trouble, right? But my first response will be to do that rather than this. I won't just slap back. And if I do this back, they go, oh, fine, thank you so much. Looks like we're all done here. Then it just spirals out of control. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that it's brilliant to be slapped in the face. What he's saying is you must be the people who de-escalate. You must be the peacemakers who don't take the offense and elevate it back the other direction. Turn to them the other cheek. Because there's always going to be two slaps in the exchange. Are you with me? I slap you, or you slap me, I punch you back. That's two, right? But here's the thing. What if there was two slaps and what happened was slap, and then you said there's always going to be two slaps in this equation. What if I don't offer it back, but I receive it twice? What happens then? Two slaps have happened. Does it escalate? We put an end to it, do you see? And so Jesus here is saying you'll be peacemakers if you take the incredibly bold decision to not retaliate when slapped. And then we see this incredible thing here, that the golden rule where we ask, where Jesus says, do to others as you would have them do to you. Can you imagine what the world would look like if we actually lived that way? It'd be exactly, it'd be heaven, wouldn't it? It'd be magnificent. Now, tonight we're hearing about living differently on our side of the bridge. And I want to tell you a guy who is living differently. Now, I don't know if you've seen this photo before. It's an extraordinary photo. Here's a picture of a shipyard, and it's a bunch of men who are workers in the shipyard. It's after their shift, and someone is going by. You will know who is going by by virtue of the kind of salute that they're offering. Can you see that? Now, there is one person in this crowd who is not joining in with the crowd. You should see this man. If we have a look in and we zoom in a little bit closer, his name is August Landmesser. Can you see what he's doing? Well, everyone, literally everyone is offering a salute. He alone is standing there doing this. And I think that's extraordinary bravery. And the reason he's not joining in is because his wife was a Jew. And they'd forbid him from marrying her and they would eventually send her to the concentration camp. But while everyone was going in a particular direction, here was one man who said, I will not stand with you and condone this evil. Brothers and sisters, God is calling us to live differently in this world. And I want you to see what that looks like. It's incredibly costly and difficult. Have a look with me at verses 32 and following. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to get repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. And you'll be called children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Guys, this could not be more radical. I want you to see here, Jesus says, there is no credit for being decent. Are you with me? Hey, I love my friends and my family. I'm a good Christian. And Jesus says, you're exactly like the pagans. There is no advantage to that. 
It's good. Keep doing it. But you're not distinctly Christian in any way. Being decent offers no reward to the Christian. Love to your enemies is what Jesus calls us to do, to love our enemies. And we think, man, I'm, I'm actually schooled enough in the goodness of God. If someone does wrong to me, I don't hit them back, okay? Which is good. Look at me, I must be godly. But what I will do is withdraw from them, fold my arms, exclude them, condemn them quietly in my heart and have nothing to do with them. And we think, see, I'm pretty godly. I didn't hit them back. And Jesus says it's not enough to passively not engage anymore with our enemies. He says for us to love our enemies and do good to them. That is stepping towards with the intention to bring good into their life. Now, brothers and sisters, if you think that's easy, you are kidding yourself. If you have a genuine enemy, the thought of doing good to them is impossible. But this is what Jesus is telling us. Why does he do it? Because we're supposed to look like our heavenly father who is merciful, it says here, to the ungrateful and the wicked. Look at verse 36. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Guys, we've got to live radically different lives. See, when when God spoke to Abraham, he said, I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And then Jesus comes along and he says, love your enemies and offer a blessing instead of curse. So when you receive a curse, what you go back with is blessing. Lord Jesus, do good in the life of this one. That's totally traditional. We're going to totally buy into bless and bless and curse and curse. Jesus is absolutely, truly radical when he says to us, we are to love our enemies and bless instead of curse. That's a radical kingdom. The last thing I want you to see here in this passage is that we're supposed to be apprentices to Jesus. Have a look at verses 37 and following. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, Shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told this parable, can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who's fully trained will be like their teacher. So here it says, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Are you generous people? Don't answer that. Of course you are. If you're stingy people, let's imagine some other people. If you're stingy people, God says, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That's worth thinking about. If you're not following Jesus here tonight, my encouragement to you would be to think, can your, bl- can your guides see? It says, blind guides will lead people into a hole. Instead, we have Jesus who sees clearly, can your guides see? And thirdly, on this one here, Forgive and you will be forgiven. Do you remember Jesus' words from the cross? Jesus is on the cross and he's dying. He's been literally nailed there. And he looks down at those who have done this and he says, Father, anyone know? Forgive them, for they do not know what they have done. Now the guys who drove the nails in knew exactly what they were doing. But they didn't ultimately know. And Jesus offered forgiveness from the cross. You and I are to be like our teacher. 
We're to be apprentices to Jesus. We should act in the way that he acts. And doing that is actually a theology test. Okay, I'm sure you didn't want a test tonight, but here we are. This is where we're coming into land. It's a theology test, how we respond to enemies and to those who do wrong with us. I'll tell you why. Because there are two ways that we can be saved. We can say that we're saved by works, in which case we're scaling the awesome mountain of our sin, trying to get to the top by effort, by doing good. Or we can say that we're saved by grace, which is saying, God, I can't ever earn or deserve your favour. I receive your forgiveness because of what Jesus has done. Now, I'll tell you why that matters. It matters because if you think you're saved by works, you've received no mercy. I'm earning my salvation. And inevitably, you will show no mercy. However, if you recognize that you are saved by mercy, that we've received mercy from God that we did not deserve, then you and I will show mercy to others. Do you see? Underlying whether we'll do this tonight is an understanding of whether we're saved by grace or by works. So how does God find you today? Is future grace real to you? Is the other side, is the future real to you or not? And if the answer is sort of, well, then it won't make any difference in your life. We have to know that the future is real in order to let it shape our today. So is your today being shaped by tomorrow? Do you see clearly what God is doing in the world? Do you look forward to the day when everything will be turned right way up Well, there'll be rewards for the faithful when our service of Jesus will be recognized for what it is. Is your today shaped by tomorrow? And then I want to ask you guys, here's a building on the the present side, (laughs) in our metaphor, of the bridge. We've got a church right here on the present side of the bridge. What would it look like if you and I, each one of us, made these kind of decisions? God, I'm going to offer forgiveness. God, I will return blessing instead of curse. God, I will count myself rejoicing when I am rejected. If we live like this, what sort of church would we be? See, here's the thing. I'll say this to you guys. We will let each other down here. I will disappoint you. If we act like the world, you will withdraw. You'll be hurt and pained. And we will respond by fracturing away. Instead, if we're truly gripped by this picture of the kingdom, we will step towards, we will offer blessing, we will extend forgiveness, we will be the family of God. And if we do that, we'll hear these beautiful words from Jesus. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who who mistreat you. If we do that, we will truly be living a new life. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the extraordinary privilege it is to get a taste of the other side. We thank you for Jesus' forgiveness, for the example he set before us. Lord, forgive us when we mess this up. Help us to be marked out as your apprentices, as we show mercy to the ungrateful and the wicked. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.